as a small child, I had um, the experience of learning how to skate. And I um, wasn't a great skater, decent skater, not a great one. But um, I enjoyed skating as a child. So much so that um, I even went to skate parties when they had them. I was happy and excited to go to skate parties. And so I went to a skate party that was being hosted by one of my elementary friends, and um, my dad dropped me off at the skate party. Again, I loved skating. I was happy to go and to participate in this skate party. And um, I skated for hours. I think maybe two, three hours was, was your party limit. I think they, I can't remember, can't remember how long you had to skate. But you know, you got young energy. So man, listen, I could go another three hours if they let me. And so I was enjoying skating. And my dad came and he showed up and he, um, he waved at me. I waved at him. I was skating, making my circle. And um, he saw me and he was smiling and I was smiling. And then I made another circle, and he waved at me, and I waved at him again. He was smiling, I was smiling. Then I made another circle, and he said, hey, okay, son, time to go. And I said, okay, Dad, okay, Dad. And, um, and, and I, I, I said, okay, but then I skated around one more time. And when I skated around this time, I was smiling, but he wasn't smiling. And I knew something had went horribly wrong. I got to my dad, didn't say a word to me. Um, he said, oh, go, you know, I went and put my shoes on. He didn't even tell me to put my shoes on. Went and put my shoes on. And as we were, as we were heading out of the skating rink, he said, son, didn't I tell you to, to come on? It was time to go. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, okay. And that was it. I'm still smiling because I think all is, you know, all is well. That was, that was a great conversation, so we're good. You know, I'm, I'm safe. And saints of God, I was not safe. <laughs> I got to the house, and my dad told me to go to the room. And he went and his room, and he got his belt. His belt has, it was a leather belt. I believe it was specially made for me, but he would argue that it wasn't. And on the belt, it had Big E. His name was EJ. It had Big E on the belt. So it's a big belt with Big E written across it. And I had an up-close experience with Big E on that Saturday afternoon for skating more laps than I was given grace to do. I learned that day that it's one thing to say you're going to do something, and it's an entirely different thing to do that which you say you're going to do. When my father said, come on, time to go, and I said, okay, Dad, here I come. He assumed that I was coming when he said to come. And Jesus tells us a parable this morning about a group of people who, on, in, on one hand, there's a group who 
say that they're not coming, and they don't. But on the other hand, there's a group that says that they are coming, and they do not. Before we dive too deeply into those two groups, I want to fix our attention on the question that's being asked in verse 28. He says, what do you think? And if you wonder why would Jesus open a parable like that, and of course we've been, this, this is a continuing series through parables. We're looking at parables of Jesus and what we've noticed, I hope you've noticed this from the very first couple of parables that we've walked through, is that a lot of times parables are often told in the context of an ongoing discussion or an ongoing query or question or an ongoing conflict. Sometimes that discussion or query or conflict is between Jesus and his disciples. Sometimes it's between Jesus and other seekers of, of the way or uh, people that are interested and, and curious about him. And then other times it is between Jesus and the religious elite who aren't necessarily interested in him but are rather interested in the best way to keep the balance of power tilted in their favor and out of the hands of Jesus. And this parable that we're looking at this morning follows that path. But Jesus' words from the beginning give us an indicator that we are picking up in an ongoing conversation by the question, what do you think? Well, what do y'all think? What, what, what is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about what's happening in the verses that precede verse 28. In verse 23, he says, and when he entered, the, uh, Matthew says, and when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the Elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? So Jesus' question, what do you think, in verse 28, is a partial response to the questions that are being asked of him in verse 23. By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And some, in summary, what, he, what, what they're actually asking Jesus is, why on earth should we listen to you? And before Jesus begins to share his answer in the form of a parable, he actually shares it in the, in the form of another question. Verse 24 of chapter 21, look there. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? Now, this question was meant to draw out a certain response. This is a pin you in a corner type of question. And you can see from what happens next that the priests seem to pick up on that. Verse 25, the baptism of John, from where did it come, from heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they, hold, for they all hold that John was a prophet. And so the priests know that they are cornered. Because if they say heaven, the question will be, well, why didn't you obey? However, however, if they say from earth, the masses that say he really is sent by God, talking about John the Baptist, will come after them. And they fear them and their opinions too much to undermine their beliefs. So the priests begin to calculate. 
But notice who is not in their calculations. Or better, or, or, or another way to say it, notice what is not in their calculations. The fear of God. Obedience to God. They're worried about what people would think. They're worried about what Jesus, you know, is going to do and, and how that's going to shift influence and shift power. They're worried about Jesus embarrassing them and showing them how wrong they are. They're worried about how upset the crowd will be. But what they don't consider is that if it's actually right, what will their disobedience mean to the Lord, the one that they proclaim to serve? And this is so reflective of our own culture. Too many of us operate in, in this sort of performative spirituality where we live our lives not in an effort to submit to God's authority, however and wherever it may appear, but rather we live our lives in an effort to simply play and pretend and posture ourselves as being spiritual. We drop a few deep spiritual quotes on our social media pages. We watch and we quote a few of the latest sermons that we've heard. We may even participate in our local church. However, spirituality without the submission to God is not true spirituality at all. Declaring yourself to be connected with God while allowing him no claim and authority on your life is a loose connection at best and a completely and totally fraudulent connection at worst. So while questioning his authority, while they question his authority, Jesus is uncovering the true issue at hand. It's not simply their struggle with believing in the authority of Jesus, but rather it is their struggle with their own rebellion against God's authority while they maintain the appearance of being spiritual. The declarations that they're making about their commitment to God and their allegiance to God do not line up with their actual actions before God. And this appears to be the central reason for Jesus introducing this parable. Again, the question has been given to the disobedient priest. Spiritual in appearance, but empty in their actual connection with God. And so to that, Jesus says, think a moment about this parable I'm about to share with you. Does it remind you of anyone? <laughs> what should you take away from it? And with that, Jesus begins to share the parable. He begins with the father's call. This is a parable about a father and two sons. And he starts with this father's call. Verse 28 again, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. Who is the father in this story? God. What does, what does his call to go and work in the vineyard today signify? It signifies a call to submission, a call of submission of our lives, a call to come and serve him in his kingdom, a call to the Christian life. We are all called to respond to God's call of service. The Apostle Paul clearly lays out, or clearly lays this out when he is speaking to the unbelievers at Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. 
In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, this is what Paul says about God's call to all. He says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has a fix, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. All people everywhere to repent. That's what he commands. That's the call. The field, the vineyard, the call to the vineyard is being made to all people everywhere. Paul's words in verse 30 are the, are the linchpin, the times of ignorance God overlooked. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. In other words, his son has now been fully revealed to the world. So what does he expect? He expects all people everywhere to repent, to have a complete change of heart. Not simply a change of appearance, not simply a change of words, declaring allegiance without actually giving allegiance, but a complete and total change of heart. That's what repentance means. So everyone has been called to the vineyard to serve. The hyper-religious... The unreligious, the irreligious, the experienced churchgoers, the disheartened, de-churched, and the completely unchurched. No matter where you find yourself in this call, family, he is calling you to repentance and calling you to service in the vineyard. And one more thing, note the urgency. Go and work in the vineyard today, the father tells the two sons. None of us actually know how much time remains in our lives to make much of Jesus, to serve him with our lives, to repent and turn from our lives of sinfulness and waywardness. No one actually knows. The Lord could come back any day, and when he comes back, it will be swiftly, not lingering around for folks to reevaluate and then declare their allegiance, or, or not even the Lord coming back. You could die any day and miss the opportunity to enter into the eternal vineyard in which he is calling you to. So that is the Father's call, that the, the, um, there's a call to come to the vineyard today and work. And to that call, he is met with his two sons' responses. Let's look at the first son's response in verse 28. Beginning in verse 28 through 29. Son, go and work in the vineyard today. Verse 29, and he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. So how does the first son respond? He responds initially with verbal rejection, but eventually with heart obedience. The first son initially rejects the father. 
Have you ever seen a child have their father ask them to do something and then the child responds to their father by telling them no? I've seen many of these, actually. I mean, I've, I've watched some on TV. I've seen them, you know, on YouTube sometimes. I, I mean, it's always interesting how this is going to play out. I've seen it in real life. But most of the time, there's a chain of reactions that normally starts. And it normally starts with, boy, who are you talking to? And that's how it starts. And then it also eventually ends, but most of the time it doesn't end pleasantly. But typically it always starts the same way, ends the same way. Who are you talking to? And then at the end, whatever, but it's not pleasant. This is a scandalous response to a father's request. But even in the midst of the scandal, the words of defiance are met with grace from a patient father who grants time for repentance. Who is Jesus referring to in this example of this first son? He gives us who he has in mind in verse 32, um, in fact. In verse 32, verse 31, Jesus points back to who? The tax collectors and the prostitutes. The tax collectors and the prostitutes. You see, he doesn't only have, it, have the tax collectors and the prostitutes in mind, though, by calling them out in particular, but he is making a point about the type of people that he has in mind and the type of people that the Father will graciously embrace even after they have rejected him. In the tax collectors, you have a group of people who exploited others that were created in the image and likeness of God. And they exploited them for their own living, their own, their own income, their own salary, their own survival. Oftentimes, their exploitation, in fact, came at the cost of their own people. Rome would employ, for example, tax collectors in Israel, in Jerusalem, in Judea. Why? So that they could collect from their own people. And, and oftentimes, they would cheat their own people and overtax. So they worked for the Roman Empire, they collected the fees from their own people, cheating them oftentimes out of money, and so they were a despised bunch. But in the prostitutes, you have a group of people who were exploited even though they were created in the image and likeness of God. So in the tax collectors, you have a group of people exploiting, and in the prostitutes, you have a group of people that are being exploited. They were treated like throwaways traded about for pleasure and tossed aside if they were as if they were disposable. And so they were a shamed group of people. So Jesus is connecting this son to not simply a disobedient and rebellious group of people, but to the most despised and shamed groups of people in the culture. These are the people that many of us walk by today and shake our head and discuss. These are the people that we oftentimes have given up on. And they are not only rejecting Christ, they are not only rejecting the Father's offer to come and work in the vineyard, but they are doing so while being rejected by the watching world around them. They're rejecting while being rejected. As Matthew captures this parable, he captures from experience now. 
Understand that because Matthew himself is or was a tax collector. And so he knows what it feels like to have the social rejection that the tax collectors faced. He knows the feeling of being despised by his own people. In fact, in Matthew chapter 9, he writes, verse nine, verses 9 through 13, Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, the despised, the shamed, sitting at the table with Jesus, eating. And then Matthew chapter 9, verse 11 says, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well or have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick. You see, while they may have rejected Christ outright, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, and are being rejected by the rest of the world and the rest of society, the despised and the shamed, Christ leaves the invitation open for them to return. And as their eyes are open to see him for who he is and their eyes are open to behold him as the living Christ, they return. And when they return, I need you to understand this, they are embraced and loved as if they never rejected him. You see, the grace of God at work in Christ Jesus through his death on the cross and at work in the lives of sinners like us is the kind of grace that no matter how many times we have said no to the love of God and no matter how many times we have turned our back on his offers of mercy, the moment we say yes is the moment that all the no's vanish and we are treated as if our only answer has always been from the beginning, yes. Scripture calls this turn in Matthew 21 and 29, this change of mind. It says the son has a change of mind. This is otherwise known as repentance. Brothers and sisters, repentance is a change of mind. It is a change of heart. It is a change at the very core of our being. Repentance is, is remorse, but it is more than remorse. Repentance is confession, but it is more than confession. Repentance is a plea for forgiveness, but it is more than a plea for forgiveness. Repentance is a change at the very core of our being, a redirection of heart. And this is the path to salvation. Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 38, it says, Now when they heard this, the words that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What is the path to salvation? Repentance, change of heart, redirection of heart. So we have the first son disrespecting, disregarding, and defying the father's command initially, but he has a change of heart. 
turns back to serve the father in the vineyard where he belongs. Now what about the second son? Verse 30. He went to the other son and said the same. What did he say? Come and work the vineyard today. And the second son responded. He answered, I go, sir, but did not go. So what is the second son's response? Initially, a verbal acceptance. The first son's response was a verbal and whole rejection. No, I'm not going. Mouth and heart aligned. I'm not going. But later on, eventually, change of heart and obedience. The second son is a verbal acceptance, but a heart rejection. Yes, I will go. But in my heart, I'm not going. And the heart rejection is continual, a continual disobedience. This is the son, by the way, who desires the immediate phony award that comes from men's applause. This is the son that comes, that, 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 that loves to hear the applause that comes with looking like you're obeying rather than actually obeying. Do you know who Jesus has in mind here as he begins to talk about the second son? If you guess the priest that he is telling this story to right now, then you guess correctly. This is the group that is huddled around trying to figure out how should we respond? Because if we respond this way, then we're going to prove him right and we're going to lose some power. But if we respond this way, then we're going to lose the crowd. And we don't want... And so how do we respond in such a way that we can keep looking good? This is the same group that probably would have been... Or this is a group that probably would have been in Matthew chapter 9, like we read, saying to themselves, how dare you eat with those unclean people? How dare you eat with those tax collectors? How dare you eat with those sinners? How dare you eat with those prostitutes? These are the same people who commit to presenting an appearance of spirituality without any bona fide spiritual fellowship with God. These are the same people that know all of the motions to go through. These are the same people that know all of the emotions to emote. They know how to, they know how to emote sadness. They know how to emote brokenness. They know how to emote uh, um, um, joy in the midst of worship. They know how to show. They know the facade. They know how to put on the facade. They know the declarations to invoke. They know all the right things to say. They know all of the, yes, I am blessed and highly favored. They know all of the, they know all of the right comments to give. But they are hollow. They are empty. They looked apart. They dressed apart. They even sing apart. But their desire to follow and obey Jesus is absent. These are the folks that kneel politely in the temple praying pleasant manicured prayers, celebrating the fact that they aren't like the other sinners that they know. 
all the while not understanding that they are worse because their trust is in their own righteousness, not the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. These people declare loudly and boldly their allegiance to God while quietly retreating when he calls them to lay themselves, their way, their will, their wants, and their desires down for the other. These are the people who declare yes and amen to all of the quotable parts of the sermon while putting nothing from the sermon into real, actual, tangible practice in their lives. This is the son who, when asked to come and work the vineyard, responds with yes while never exhibiting and displaying the heart to actually follow through on his verbal acceptance. And Jesus asks a very important question in verse 31. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they get it. They get it. They respond what? The first one. Saints of God, pleasant agreement is not the same as difficult obedience. Nodding your head pleasantly is not the same as difficult obedience. Looking obedient and being obedient are two entirely different actions. One is rooted in relationship of gratefulness to God and one is rooted in relationship of transaction with God. When we try to look obedience because we're trying to use God for the sake of our own appearance and influence. When we're being obedient, it's moving out of transaction to actual relationship that's built on graciousness or gratefulness and not simply out of what I can get from him. Jesus is teaching us something incredibly important here, and that is this, posturing like we will follow and obey God while having no intention to do so is to reject him, is to reject his call. One theologian says it this way. He says, in the kingdom, performance takes priority over promise. In other words, he's not saying that we're saved by our performance, but he's saying just simply saying you're going to do something does not take priority over actually doing it. James tells us very clearly to do what? Be what? Not just hearers, but what? Doers of the word. That's where true faith resides. Faith must be, I heard another brother say, faith must be lived and not simply held. The desire to walk in obedience to the Father is a reflection of not only our commitment to the Father, but our trust in the Father. When we, when we commit ourselves to obeying him, it is an act of trust. It is an act of faith. Simply saying that you'll obey while never obeying demonstrates that you don't really believe or really trust him enough to obey. Verse 31 says, which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. And so God's response here to this parable is that there's a great reversal. The second son has a lot going on for him. He's well put together. He's clean as a whistle on the outside. He's very knowledgeable of the law and yet living completely and totally for himself. All performative. 
all performative spirituality, not bona fide, not genuine. The first son has very little going on for him. Shamed his father in the scandalous, uh, the scandalous conduct of disobedience, tells his father outright, I'm not doing it. Stands in rebellion for a period of time. But, but in that scandal, eventually has a change of heart, change of mind, and returns. Jesus says to that son, comparing, uh, comparing the prostitutes and the tax collectors to that son, he says, they'll get into the kingdom of heaven before you. Why? Because their spirituality, their relationship with God is not performative. It's genuine. It's bona fide. They aren't trying to simply look good before him or before others. They are actually trying to enjoy relationship and live in obedience and trust and faith in Christ. And so what's our response to all of this? Look at verse 32. There's something a little bit more there that I want to key in on before we wrap up. He says, for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. It says, John came in the way of righteousness. You rejected it. Even, that, even after you knew better and saw better, you still rejected it. What does this kind of change of heart and change of mind look like, though? That's what I want to key in on. Because Jesus tells us that John came in the way of righteousness. So maybe, maybe it is John who will tell us what this kind of repentance looks like. So, for example, when you look at John, you look at his call to repentance in Luke chapter 3. Listen to what he says. Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 8 through 14. He says this, bear fruit, fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So John is addressing what we've been talking about. Don't just simply be satisfied with putting on an appearance of spirituality and holiness and, and, and pursuit of God, but actually pursue God. And how, do you, how is John saying pursue it? Pursue God with a change of heart, a change of mind, bearing and, and bearing the fruit that is consistent with a change of heart and a change of mind. And then he goes on and he says this, and the crowds asked him, verse 10, what then shall we do in Luke chapter 3, verse 10? What then shall we do? What does this repentance look like, John? And John said in verse 11, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. What is John doing? 
You see, this group of priests that we're talking about in Matthew 21, they were worried about the balance of power. They wanted to continue looking the part to remain in power versus actually living it out. In other words, they were concerned about themselves. How is this going to impact me? What kind of power am I going to have if, 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 I answer this, if I answer this the wrong way? What kind of power am I going to lose? What kind of influence am I going to lose amongst the people if I answer it this way? But John says what repentance looks like is less thinking about you. It says when you begin to live out true repentance, you begin to think more about others around you. It opens the heart. It widens the heart. In other words, John's saying that, 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 that if you're still operating with a closed heart and still thinking inward and only thinking inward, then, then repentance is, is looking more like the priest in Matthew 21. Self-involved, craving power, holding on to it. But when you begin to live out your repentance, it opens the heart, it, it widens the heart. It extends grace. It stops saying, it stops saying, let me hold on to power. And it starts saying, let me give whatever power I have out. Let me empower other people around me. Now, how do we get to that place where we are thinking about ourselves less and giving of ourselves more? I want you to look at John again. John, same guy that these priests have rejected, gives us the blueprint. He tells us what repentance looks like, but he tells us also how to get there. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, this is what John says when he sees Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the key. Beholding. We become less absorbed with ourselves when we behold the one who died in our place. Where does true change of heart come from? What does, does change at the very core of your being come from? It only comes when your eyes are open to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When we see him, when you see what he has done, when you recognize that he came into this world perfect and without spot or wrinkle and lived a perfect life and deserved no punishment and yet took all punishment on your behalf, when you truly see that, when your eyes are truly open to behold that, then you start thinking less of yourself and preserving your power and keeping your influence and looking good before people. And you start thinking about how, Lord, can I lay my life down before the one who did so for me? That's where true change of heart comes. When we don't have a change of heart, it's, 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 it's because we haven't seen him. It's because we haven't beheld him as the one who comes and takes away the sins of the world. And so as you take inventory of your life today, which of these two sons most reflect where you are? 
Have you grown accustomed to simply offering empty promises to God, empty platitudes to God, just playing the role, making sure everybody still keeps you in good graces? Are you openly declaring your allegiance to him while ignoring his call to the vineyard? Maybe you're publicly declaring your allegiance to Jesus, announcing to yourself and to others that you are, in fact, a Christian while never really showing any interest in trying to take to heed the Father's instructions and actually incorporating them in your life. Maybe you've declared Jesus as Lord and Savior but still have shown no desire to actually follow him when he beckons for you to come and lay down greed and pride and hatred of those whom you disagree with and lustful conduct and sex outside of marriage. Maybe that is you as you take inventory of your life. You say, maybe that is you. Maybe you're watching and you say, yeah, that, that, that's me, bro. I'm sorry. Well, here's the good news is that the Lamb of God who John has called us to behold has come to take away the sins of the world, and he didn't just die for the prostitute. He didn't just die for the tax collector, but he also died for the self-righteous. He died for the poser. He died for the fakers. He died for those that are looking the part but not living the part. He died for those who are serving God only with their lips while their hearts are far from him. He died for those. He died for all in order that all might have a what? Change of heart. And behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and turn their affections, not just their words, but their affections to him. As he calls them to the vineyard. Saints of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And though you have been rebellious or though you have said yes when your heart meant no, now you have the opportunity and the grace and the mercy from Jesus Christ to have a change of heart. May we do so. Amen. Amen. God, we love you. 